0: Candle of Advent Read. This is the candle of hope.
1: With Christian,
2: as Christians around the world, we use this light to help us prepare our hearts and minds for the coming of God's Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. And we receive God's light as
0: to. All right, let us pray.
1: Lord, as we look to the birth of Thank you, guys.
2: There's just something fun and special about Christmas. Um, kind of hard to articulate at times, but it's just kind of a kind of a neat deal. Well, welcome here. Good morning, church. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Luke, and I get to to be the pastor here. Uh, a couple of announcements this morning as we get ready to, to <laughs> sing. A reminder that the MCC meat canner is this week from Tuesday to Friday, and they're going to be staging that over at uh, Bethesda. That's a, a pretty neat deal going on over there. Uh, a reminder about Giving Tuesday. Uh, Mission USA, which is the church planning organization for the MB churches in the U.S., is doing a big fundraiser on Tuesday. And uh, apparently like th- like Tuesday, Tuesday giving is a thing, like it's not something they came up with. So uh, if you still have money left over from Black Friday and Cyber Monday, um, there's giving Tuesday. Um, uh, Christmas Eve in the barn, a reminder about that. Uh, continue to get really excited about that. That is just a really great opportunity uh, to just have a, an experiential, fun, unique Christmas Eve service. In, in one of the meetings, I don't know who said it, but I think it was, it was so brilliant, um, but the idea that we're trying to create a sense of the simple, a sense of awe, and a sense of holy. And I really like that description. To me, that just sums it up so well with, with what we're, we're trying to do. Great opportunity to bring friends, uh, especially any friends that, that you have that might not have a church home or that find the church environment uncomfortable, um, bring them to a barn instead. So that'll be uh, Christmas Eve, and we'll have uh, free tickets for that at 4.30 and 6.30. I also wanted to let you know just about some changes happening in the office. Uh, Lisa has been offered a, a neat uh, expanded role working with Sandy Croker, something that she's already been doing part-time. But just with life, kids, daycare, schedule, um, that role is just a better fit. So she's actually concluding her time with us end of December. And um, I think it's a great opportunity, really happy for her. Um, but she has worked here for six years, and so over this next month or so, as you see her, uh, just tell her thanks and congratulations and, and that we're going to miss her and that kind of thing. So um, I also need to finish up a uh, job description, and then we, we will be taking applications, obviously, for, for that role. Uh, continue to be administrative, but also uh, some more kind of marketing, social media, uh, tech component to it. So. And also, we are going to be doing something called the Alpha Course starting in January as part of our Wednesday night program. And uh, the Wednesday night, we take a break over Christmas, and I believe it's on the 11th. It's the second Wednesday that starts up, and so we're going to be doing uh, an Alpha program, and we actually have a video on that.
1: going to fit everything in. But then there are bigger questions like, why am I here? What's my purpose? Where am I heading? Is there more to life than this? These are some of life's big questions, but there's rarely enough time to think them through. That's why Alpha exists. Alpha is a place to explore life's big questions in a safe and open environment. A series of sessions where anyone can share their thoughts and opinions and ask questions without feeling judged. When you come to an alpha, you'll notice that first, there's food. Whether it's a full meal or a light snack, this is the time to get to know each other in a casual setting. Next, you'll watch an alpha talk. The talks are created to engage and spark conversation. They explore big issues around faith from a Christian perspective. After the talk is a time for discussion. This is the most essential part of any Alpha. It allows everyone to share their own opinions on the ideas presented in the talks. It's a time for people with different thoughts, beliefs, and experiences to ask honest questions and have open conversation. Every week, there are guests coming for the first time to an Alpha in their community. Alpha is for everyone, regardless of background or beliefs. There's no pressure, no follow-up, and it's completely free to attend. Come and explore life's big questions. Find an alpha near you today.
2: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for another day of grace, another day of mercy. God, thank you that it's okay for us to ask big questions about who you are and what's the purpose of life and how do things work? Lord, this morning as we gather to worship and to hear from your word, Lord, ultimately we want to hear from you. So we invite you to come to speak, to lead, to guide. We love you, Lord. Amen.
3: We invite you to stand and join in worship. And this is the first Sunday of Advent. And uh,
0: the word that kind of sticks out today is Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. And that is our hope. He is with us. He never leaves us or forsakes us, and he has come. So we'll just praise him this morning, worship him this morning. The sun has now risen in heavenly glory to scatter the darkness of night. So dry all your tears and sing out in wonder for Jesus, the Christ child, brings healing and life. Praise God for salvation, for peace. Of sin and deep longing to fight from its boundaries. Then Christ broke up. For peace and for life, for Christ the Redeemer God has banished the night. He's banished the night. The light has come. Joy for the Son of God is the saving one, is the saving one, shout for joy. Joy for the Son of God Is the saving one Is a saving one Shout for joy See what love has done He has come for us Is a saving one Shout joy. For the Son of God is a saving one. He's a saving one. Shout for joy. Come on.
1: brought us light into the darkness. May we be that light in the darkness as well and shine your hope to others. Thank you for Christmas, what it all
0: means, and that we can celebrate and look forward to what you do in our lives and what you will continue to do. We praise you, Lord.
2: As we get ready to have a word of prayer together, I would in- invite you to remember Dean this week. He's getting knee replacement surgery on Tuesday, I believe it is. So, um, you know, anytime they start switching out body parts, that's kind of a big deal. So, uh, yeah, be praying for Dean this week. Let's uh, let's have a time of prayer together. Heavenly Father, it is... Um, yeah, it's just wonderful lord that we that we have this holiday where really the the focus is on you and god it's easy to get distracted by the the lights and and the festivities and the gifts god this, this holiday though just continue to keep drawing us back to this to the wonder to the simplicity to the awe to the holiness that you as God came as a baby to save us so we can have a restored relationship with you? I mean, is there any greater storyline that could possibly exist? God, as we enter into Advent, we pray for our families. We remember those with physical ailments. We remember Dean and others. God, Lord, we pray as many of us gather with families that you would be the center of it all. Lord, I pray that you would also make us aware of those where perhaps Christmas is a difficult season or who don't have families. God, I pray that we would just be extra sensitive to those around us, that we would look for opportunities to share and to bless others. God, thank you for this remarkable. Message, this message that you came. Thank you that we get to share it with others. Thank you that we get to teach it to our children. Thank you that we get to remind each other of it. We love you. then team. So uh, here's kind of the dirty little secret on the Hydley family. Uh, and I did get permission to share this. Joanne just is coincidentally working in the nursery if you're wondering why I'm sharing dirty secrets and she's not here. Um, but here's kind of the little secret around our house. And that is that if for some reason you come over to our place. And it's even, like, sort of clean, like we cleaned up for you, okay? Like, we, like, some people, God bless them, right? And I'm actually in, in sort of jealous of this. But, like, some people, they're like, the, like, we vacuum on Tuesdays. We scrub toilets on Thursdays. Like, we just live super clean. You know that? Like, if you're that, like, I'm kind of jealous of you. Um, not us, okay? And uh, so if you come over, at some point, probably that day, uh, we tidied up. And as I've been reflecting on this, I realized that there's kind of two levels to clean, right? Like there is, you know, because typically it's the junk mail, you know, and there's the kind of clean where you just shove it someplace, you know, like you have the closet or like drawers two and three on the cabinet or like wherever, you know, just c- put it in that box in that room or something like that. And it's just kind of out of the way, out of sight. And um, But if anyone opens that door, just, like, Lord have mercy, like, you know? Um, but then there's kind of the deeper cleaning, like, where you actually, like, deal with the stuff, you know? Like, oh, the kid needed this at school, and I should have paid that, and we don't need that credit. Like, you actually kind of work through it, you know? The, the, so, there, you know, there's kind of different levels of clean. And the other thing that I have never really thought about, uh, really, and, and, until I was thinking about this... But we probably clean differently based on who's coming over. But I'm not sure really beyond that, right? So, like, if you come over and, like, the place is spick and span, or it's just kind of like, meh, you know? Like, that probably says something about our relationship, although I'm not sure what, right? Like, that will require a bit more reflection, so maybe don't read into that too much. Um, But it's just, yeah, I, I suspect that there's something going on there. And... See, but I, re, I reveal this with a great deal of confidence to you because I, I'm pretty sure that many of you do the same. Like, I'm not surveyed, but I'm just, I'm just you know, we got like 100 people here statistically. Uh, some of you probably do the same. But there's just something ingrained in all of us, I think, that if visitor or if, if company are coming over into your house, you prepare for them tidy, you clean, maybe you prep food, maybe you set out the tea, I'm not sure what, but it just seems like there's something in human nature that says if someone is going to come into my space, I prepare for them, I prepare for the guests. All throughout the Old Testament, we, we see prophecies, we, we read about hints of a savior, of a messiah, Who would come, who would save mankind, who would restore broken relationship with God. I mean, as early as the Garden of Eden, where we're seeing these kinds of uh, of prophecies. The very last words in the Old Testament read like this. I'm in um, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. End of sentence. And it's actually believed that after that there was 400 years of silence. That God spoke those words through the prophet Malachi, and after that, just silence. Year after year, decade after decade. Century after century, silence. And then one day, Gabriel, the angel, appears. And he appears to this dear, sweet elderly couple. He says, You're going to have a son. And this is what he says of their son He says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before them in the spirit and power of of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared so so this this young man is going to go before the Lord and he is going to prepare the people for the coming of Jesus folks company was coming over right for the nation of Israel Company's coming. And the primary message of John the Baptist was repent. That was how they were to clean house. That's how they were to tidy things up in preparation for the arrival of the Messiah. Is that John the Baptist was to go throughout the region. Clean up house by saying repent. Get stuff in order. Deal with the junk mail. That food that's been out for like three days, get rid of it. We have company coming over. Both Matthew and Luke tell the story of John the Baptist. Uh, only Luke actually does it in chronological order. Matthew uh, starts with Jesus, uh, gives the, the kind of the background of Jesus, and then kind of goes back in time and tells the story before the story. Uh, we're going to go through the the first part of Luke here and uh, and, and look at, at his account of all this. Um Starting at the very beginning of Luke, I'm going to skip the, the first four chapters. Uh, Luke is uh, simply making an intro, um, green that this man, Theophilus, who was likely a, a, a wealthy um, political figure, actually, who financed Luke taking like one or two years to, to travel around and research the, the life of Jesus and then putting together an account. So there's actually quite a bit of detail just in those first five verses. Luke dives into the story, though, um, in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of uh, Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah and his wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. Both were advanced in years. So it starts off with this couple. They I mean, the the priests of the day were kind of the pastors of the day, and both of them had grown up basically in a pastor's house, right? And so they were they just they they knew this this business. Dear, sweet, elderly couple, loved Jesus, did all the right things, but never had any kids. And in that day, there was a lot of stigma around that. And it was assumed that if you didn't have any kids, then you had done something wrong. And this was God's punishment. And so in some ways, Luke kind of has to clarify and say, look, these are good, holy, righteous people. But they they didn't have, they, they didn't have any kids. And so, so there's this stigma associated with it. There's also financial implications, actually, because your kids were your retirement plan. Right? Like, there was no, like, 401K thing, you know, I'm saving away you know for no like you had kids and they took care of you no kids retirement looks a little dicey actually and of course they were they were elderly too old to have kids in many ways this is kind of the classic example of why do bad things happen to good people Verse 8, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot, to enter the temple of the Lord, and burnt incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Okay, so here it mentions his division. There were 24 divisions. Each division had one week where they would go to Jerusalem and serve at the major temple. Right? This was not Solomon's temple that was torn down. Herod built another one, like three times bigger, probably because he had a massive ego. But so there's this massive temple in Jerusalem. And so these divisions would go in on kind of a rotating basis. And so twice a year, your division would be responsible. But then on special holidays like Pentecost and Feast of Booth and that kind of thing, like everyone showed up, um, all the divisions showed up. Um, and they would burn incest in the, mor- in the morning and in the evening but it's estimated that there were like 18,000 priests at the time. So when your name came up, that was once in a lifetime opportunity. Some people said just statistically is once in a lifetime some some commentary said no like once your name like was drawn like you were out of the drawing for future drawings, that kind of thing. So this was once in a lifetime deal. So this guy, older, you know, he's gone his whole life, he's never gotten to go inside the temple, right? Like the younger punk did, of course. You know, because life is unfair. But now, finally, he gets his opportunity to go in. And so, in many ways, this is kind of a highlight of his career that that this gets to happen. Okay? Um, so, so, he gets to go in. People are outside praying. You know, pretty cool moment. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zachariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him okay no one else is supposed to be in the temple and then suddenly like this dude appears and pretty much every account of people encountering angels is like fear trembling collapse i'm going to die this is awful like very few people are like oh i've been waiting for this terrifying moment for for most people The angel talks. Verse 13, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid. I always have to open with that. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. Uh, to make ready, uh, another way to make ready for the Lord, a uh, uh, people prepared, uh, um, to, to, to have the people, yeah, just just ready for the Lord. Jesus was coming, and so John's role? Clean house. He was to prepare for this amazing visitor. And the way that he was to do that was to lead them in the process of repentance. Jesus would later refer to John the Baptist, as the greatest prophet who had ever lived. Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Greater than Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, Moses, Abraham. This is a very powerful statement that Jesus makes. Jesus connects John the Baptist, to the the prophecy. Uh, If you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah to come. Jews today actually still wait for Elijah. I think it is Passover, I'm not sure. They leave an empty uh, chair at the table, and a part of the ceremony, one of the kids is sent to the door to look outside to see if Elijah has come. They still wait for Elijah, not accepting that Elijah, in many ways, has come. I find this kind of a hard passage, actually, because for myself, and I think for many of us, that was kind of a fairly legit question, you know. Um, But Gabriel didn't think so. And and it's actually speculated because um, Gabriel then later on visits Mary, and Mary also asks a question. She's like, hey, how could this be because I'm a virgin, you know, complication there. But, but some feel that Mary's question is more of a question of how could this be, whereas Zachariah's question really at the heart of it is actually more of, a, I don't believe you, and can you give me additional proof? Regardless, Gabriel gets stern. He identifies himself, clarifies that he stands in the presence of God. Just the fact that when he named himself as Gabriel should have gotten his attention. There are only three angels that game, that were named in the Old Testament, And so when he identified himself as Gabriel, like Zechariah should have clued in, like he's like, oh, yes, I've read about you. But Zechariah is to be mute, and it's actually a punishment. He doubted, and yeah, his opening question is basically, you know, give me more proof. verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, they were wondering at his delay at the temple, and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remaining mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. Verse, um, it then transitions to, um, to Jesus, to Mary, Uh, Verse 57 talks about the birth of John the Baptist. I'm actually going to skip that part. But I do just want to highlight verse 80, the last verse of chapter 1. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Luke um, explains what John's ministry uh, looks like. Uh, Matthew's is a little bit more concise so I'll just read to you Matthew's account of it uh, in Matthew 3, chapter 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So he, he he's now started his public ministry. Um, verse 2. And th- like this is this is his his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is coming. Clean house. Repent. And then at verse 3, for uh, this is who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Luke, in in his more thorough thing, um, you know, I've heard the quote where it's like brood of vipers, and I always thought that that he was chastising like the the Pharisees. Um, Actually, he just said that to the crowds. Like, people came out, and he was like, you brood of vipers. Like, not hospitable at all. Like, just grumpy wilderness guy. And yet, people came from everywhere to hear this man speak, to repent of their sins, to confess, to be baptized in the river. Some of this I don't get, actually. I mean, if Jesus is going to come, and if he's going to make forgiveness available to all, then why did John yell at people to, like, repent beforehand? Like, doesn't that seem sort of a bit redundant? Like, Jesus is going to come and say, hey, repent and believe and be saved? Why, Why did John need to go beforehand and say... Hey, repent so you can be saved. Like, it kind of feels sort of like the same message to me. Why, why, like, the smaller repentance and then the bigger repentance? Um, I don't know, actually. (laughs) I don't know the why. I don't even know the how. But I have observed in my life and in others that following confession and repentance, there is an increased tenderness to the things of God. Uh, an increased awareness of His presence, of His movement, of His heart. Sin brings callousness or callousness. Confession, repentance restores sensitivity. I was um, looking through my stuff, and I was like, hey, do I have any previous material on repentance? And uh, search through my, you know, on my computer, on my documents. And I have a document written by A.W. A. Tozer, and I have no idea where it came from. I have no idea how it got in my collection of files. Um, it doesn't, like, it doesn't quote a book or a reference. It just says, like, it's this devotional written by A.W. Tozer. And I, I don't know how it got there, but it got there. It's like, what is this? And so I read it, and it wrecked me, absolutely wrecked me. It was a very miserable experience. And then later on, I thought, all right, going to read this again. Should be better the second round, right? No, no. I've read it probably half a dozen times this week, every time. It's just misery. So I'm going to read it to you in hopes that you have the same horrible experience that I had. And I tried to, like, edit it down and summarize and be like, all right, can we cut out? No. It's like a house of cards. You know, you pull one and the whole thing just kind of collapsed. A couple pages. As I read through this, he he will clarify this once, but but just a reminder. He's going to frequently reference the plow, and, and that's a metaphor for confession and repentance. As you hear of the plow being spoken, it's an agricultural thing, so, you know, we should be good here. As you hear of the plow being spoken of, know that that is a metaphor for confession and repentance. He bases this off of Hosea 10, verse 12. Break up your, your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and reign righteousness upon you. A.W. Tozer writes this. Here are two kinds of ground fallow grounds and ground that has been broken up by the plow. The fallow field is smug, contented, protected from the shock of the plow and the agitation of the harrow. Such a field, as it lies year after year, becomes a familiar landmark to the crow and the blue jay. Had it intelligence, it might take a lot of satisfaction in its reputation. It has stability. Nature has adopted it. It can be counted on always to remain the same while the fields around it change from brown to green and back to brown again. Safe, undisturbed, it sprawls lazily in the sunshine, the picture of sleeping contentment. But it is paying a terrible price for its tranquility. Never does it see the miracle of growth. Never does it feel... The motions of mounting life, nor see the wonders of bursting seed, nor the beauty of ripening grain. Fruit it can never know, because it is afraid of the plow and the harrow. In direct opposite to this, the cultivated field has yielded itself to the adventure of living. The protecting fence has opened to admit the plow, and the plow has come as plows always come practical. Businesslike and in a hurry. Peace has been shattered by the shouting farmer and the rattle of machinery. The field has felt the travail of change. It has been upset, turned over, bruised, and broken. But its rewards come hard upon its labors. The seed shoots up into daylight, its miracle of life, curious, exploring the new world above it. All over the field, the hand of God is at work in the age-old and ever-renewed service of creation. New things are born, mature, and consummate, the grand prophecy latent in the seed when it entered the ground. Nature's wonders follow the plow. There are two kinds of lives, also, the fallow and the plowed. For examples of the fallow life, we need not go far. They're all too plentiful among us. The man of fallow life is contented with himself and the fruit he wants for. He does not want to be disturbed. He smiles in tolerant superiority through the revivals and fasting and self-searching and all the travail of fruit-bearing and the anguish of advance. The spirit of adventure is dead within him. He is steady, faithful, always in his accustomed place, conservative and something of a landmark in the church. But he is fruitless. The curse of such a life is that it is fixed, both in size and content. To be has taken the place of to become. The worst that can be said of such a man is that he is what he will be. He has fenced himself in, and by the same act, he has left out God and the miracle. The plowed life is the life that is in the act of repentance. "...thrown down the protecting fences, and sent the plow of confession into the soul. The urge of the spirit, the pressure of circumstances, the distress of fruitless living, have combined thoroughly to change the humble heart. Such life has put away defense, and has forsaken the safety of death for the peril of life. Discontent, yearning, contrition... Courageous obedience to the will of God. These have bruised and broken the soil till it is ready again for the seed. And as always, fruit follows the plow. Life and growth begin as God rains down righteousness. Such one can testify and the hand of the Lord was upon me there. Corresponding to these two kinds of life, religious history shows two phases the dynamic and the static. The dynamic periods were those heroic times when God's people stirred themselves to do the Lord's bidding and went out fearlessly to carry out His witness to the world. They exchanged the safety of inaction for the hazards of God-inspired progress. Invariably, the power of God followed such action. The miracle of God went, where, went when and where His people went, and it stopped when His people stopped. The static periods were those times when the people of God tired of the struggle and sought a life of peace and security. Then they busied themselves trying to conserve the, grains made, the gains made in those most daring times when the power of God moved among them. Bible history is pre- replete with examples. Abraham went out on his great adventures of faith. God went with him. Revelations Theophanies, the gift of Palestine, covenants, the promises of rich blessing to come were the results. Then Israel went into Egypt. The wonders ceased for 400 years. But at the end of that time, Moses heard the call of God step forth to challenge the oppressor. A whirlwind of power accompanied that challenge and Israel soon began to march. As long as she dared to march, God sent out his miracles to clear the way for her. Whenever she laid down like a fallow field, he turned off his blessing and waited for her to rise again and command his power. This is a brief but fair outline of the history of Israel and the church as well. As long as they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord worked with them, confirming the word with miraculous signs following. But then when but when they retreated to monasteries or played at building pretty cathedrals, the help of God was withdrawn till a Luther or Wesley, arose to to change hell again. Then, invariably, God poured his power as before. In every denomination, mission, society, local church, or individual Christian, this law operates. God works as long as his people live daringly. He ceases when they no longer need his aid. As soon as we seek protection outside God, we find it to our undoing. Let us build a safety wall of endowments, bylaws, prestige, multiplied agencies for the delegation of our duties, and creeping paralysis sets in at once, the paralysis which can only lead in death. The power of God comes only when it is called out by the plow. It is released in the church only when she is doing something that demands it. By the word doing, I do not mean mere activity. The church has plenty of hustle as it is, but in all her activities, she is very careful to leave her fallow ground, mostly untouched. She is careful to confine her hustling within the far marked boundaries of complete safety. This is why she is fruitless. She is safe, but fallow. Look around today and see where the miracles of power are taking place. Never in the seminary where each thought is prepared for the student to be received painlessly and at second hand. Never in the religious institution where tradition and habit have long ago made faith unnecessary. Never in the old church where memorial tablets plastered over the furniture bear silent testimony to a glory that once was. Invariably where daring faith is struggling to advance in spite of the hopeless odds, there is God sending help from the sanctuary. In the missionary society, where I have been many years associated, I have noticed that the power of God has always hovered over our frontiers. Miracles have accompanied our advances and have ceased when and where we allowed ourselves to become satisfied and cease to advance. But I am more concerned with the effect of this truth upon the local church and the individual. Look at that church where plentiful fruit was once the regular and expected thing But now there is little or no fruit, and the power of God seems to be in absence. What is the trouble? God has not changed, nor has his purpose for that church changed in the slightest measure. No, the church itself has changed. A little self-examination will reveal that it and its members have become fallow. It has lived through its early travails and has now come to accept an easier way of life. It is content to carry on its painless program with enough money to pay its bills and a membership large enough to assure its future. Its members now look to it for security rather than for guidance in the battle between good and evil. It has become a school instead of a barracks. Its members are students, not soldiers. They study the experience of others instead of seeking new experience of their own. The only way The only way to power for such a church is to come out of hiding and once more take the danger and circled path of obedience. Its security is its deadliest foe. The church that fears the plow writes its own epitaph. The church that uses the plow walks in the way of revival. Christmas, we remember a time when Jesus came. But we are also reminded that He is coming again. Uh, the word Advent means arrival. So at Christmas, we remember the first arrival. But we also remind ourselves that there is a second arrival. And maybe your second arrival will be in heaven. Perhaps you will pass away here and have your second arrival in heaven. Maybe you will still be here and Jesus will come to get you and that will be your second arrival. Friends, I am begging you, clean your house. As Tozer wrote, let the plow of confession and repentance do its work. If you want to prepare for God, clean your house. And if you can't think of anything, ask your spouse. That they can think of some things. Or your kids. They might have one or two items. If you're hard-pressed, I'll meet with you. If you can't think of any sins, then maybe you should start by repenting for a weak relationship with the Holy Spirit. Repent for a calloused heart and a deaf ear to the promptings of the Lord. If you don't see yourself as the worst sinner in this room and consequently the largest consumer of grace in this room, you could start with pride, confessing for pride. If you've not read your Bible for a week, then you can repent for not taking making Scripture a priority. If you've not read it in two weeks, you can repent for not making God a priority. If you have looked to your career, to your kids, to your spouse, to your finances, to your family name, your good deeds, to your bad deeds, if you have looked to any of those as a source of identity, then you can repent for worshipping idols. If there are people that you would refuse to have in your home for a meal, then you can repent for unforgiveness, bitterness, and not loving like Jesus loved. I had a co-worker, his daughter was um, They had a guy break into their house, um, stole some things. It was at night. In that process, we don't know the details, he also took the daughter and moved her outside. And, um, I mean, he was caught, like, two blocks away. Um, But technically it became kidnapping. And the trauma that followed that family, like, in the year or two after, was remarkable. Like, they were deeply, deeply traumatized by this. They're in a very good space now. Their bar for forgiveness was that this man could come to the front door and that they would invite him in, sit down with him, offer him a drink, offer him a meal. Like, that was their bar for forgiveness. They actually, when they were at a place of forgiveness, they tr- they went to the prison and they wanted to meet with him to express forgiveness. When the prison guards found out who they were, they were like, no. Not a chance, we, we, no, we don't do, no. One other thing on that, forgiveness, healing, and reconciliation are three different things, all right? Forgiveness is something you do, healing is something you experience, reconciliation is something you work at with the other person. Only talking forgiveness here, all right? Healing and forgiveness are something. If you pull the Zachariah, if God told you that he was going to do something, ask you to do something, you demanded more proof then you could repent for lack of faith. If you are proud of the accomplishments in your life and you credit them to your hard work and how you earned it, but then you blame God for all the bad things in your life, you can repent for giving God the blame for the hard stuff while you take credit for the good stuff. Or just pride in treating God like a vending machine and that kind of thing. In the past year, if you've not shed a single tear during some element of worship music, then you can repent of a hard heart. That list should get you started. There are sins of omission and sins of commission. A sin of commission is a a sin because I committed an act that I should not have done. I did something wrong. Sins of omission is a sin because you did not do something that you should have done. So you can sin by doing. You can sin by not doing. Lots of opportunities out there for us. But my prayer for all of us is that in preparation, we clean house. That we confess, that we repent, so as to prayer... so, as to prepare a good and clean space in our hearts. And my prayer is that until this cleaning takes place to God's satisfaction, for you and myself, that your life would be miserable. I pray your sins make life awful for you. And this is not an openness to the enemy. We forbid that in the name of Jesus. Or rather, this is an open to the, openness to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in helping you clean house. And we do welcome that in the name of Jesus. If you feel the sting of conviction, don't rush out of that. Not because I want you to punish yourself. That's not the goal here. But rather, I want you to better understand God's heart in this. And how we grieve His Spirit when we sin. The goal is to understand God's heart. When you hurt your spouse, you don't say, sorry, and then walk off. You linger. You say, you know, are things okay? How are you? How am I? Is relationship restored? We don't do snap apologies with our spouse. Why would we do them with the Lord? A lot of confession and repentance can happen in private prayer. If it is something that is recurring, you may need to talk to another person, another man, another woman. James, the book of James, tells that confessing to other people, we can experience healing. Forgiveness is from God. It is immediate, but healing is different. Sometimes we need other people for that. Uh, And a healthy relationship with God requires more than just kind of like the I'm sorry and I walk away, right? Linger with the Lord. One of the greatest displays of God's love for you is his discipline in your life five six. it means he treats you like a son and he treats you like a daughter and before you just get totally depressed on me in parenting one of the most critical times in the relationship between you and the child is after you discipline right it, it's very important after you discipline whatever that looks like whether it was like time out or spanking or whatnot, that afterwards that they be reassured of your love and of your affection. It's a, a, a very important time, and you kind of got to time it just right, but it is so critical that that you hug the child, that you hold the child, that you that you tell them you love them, that, that you reassure them. So we discipline, but of equal value afterwards, we show love, affection, and acceptance. And after your repentance, look for that moment where God holds you. You you will find an intense embrace of acceptance. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Um, We're going to have just a moment or two of silence. Do business with God, you know, whatever that looks like. Maybe some can be done here. Maybe some needs to be done later. Maybe... You need to have a conversation with someone. I'm not really sure. But we're just going to have a, a moment of your silence. Then I'll just kind of just kind of give us an amen. Um, afterwards, we're going to sing hymn of joy. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Um, it is a good song. It is a celebrative song. It is a joyous song. But pay close attention to the words. Sing them with reverence. Joyful, joyful, we adore Thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness. Drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness, fill us with the light of day. Thou art giving and forgiving, ever-blessing ever-blessed wellspring of the joy of fact that we are instructed to call you Father, uh, then Scripture, we, we call you Abba Father, which is a very close, intimate uh, Father Son relationship term, is remarkable. I think our, our modern version would be uh, Daddy. Father, if we have felt the sting of conviction, with that. And God, we know that this is because you treat us as sons and as daughters and that it is out of love. God, we also know that you are the perfect parent that after moments of discipline that you are so tender with us, so gracious, affirming, expressing words of love and acceptance and of affirmation. And God, while we accept the sting of conviction, God, we also know that once it's forgiven, it is forgiven, that it is done. And God, we receive Lord, may this process of cleaning house not be a, a Sunday morning thing. God, I pray that it would be something that, that you and I would work on all week long. That we would prepare a place for you. That we would prepare for for your arrival. Lord, with the word Amen, God, we are not signaling a close to prayer, God, but rather we are signaling a transition in the style of prayer in which we are engaged. God, with with, with the word Amen, we're, we're not saying we stop praying, but rather we are transitioning to an ongoing, listening, attentive spirit to you. Amen does not mean our prayer ends. It just means we shift what kind of prayer we're engaged in. Thank you for the plow, for confession, for repentance. God, we want to be the life where you are able to work, move, where life springs forth. God, everything that A.W. Tozer wrote about, we want to be that.